You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is ITK's David Leach. David, we continue to live in interesting times. It sounds like an old Chinese curse, I think. Uh, yes, and a familiar one, and uh, that's a jolly good thing too, although not sometimes for everyone at all times. Uh, but listen, uh, Giles, we shouldn't uh, blather on. We've got a great couple of great guests this week and uh, quite a bit to talk about. Look, we do indeed. Um, later in this podcast, we have an interview with Alison Crook, who was the founding chairperson of Innova Energy, which uh, sort of collapsed this week, sort of um, highlighting yet another weakness in the market. And uh, we'll get to that uh, later in this podcast. But first of all, I'd like to introduce uh, Ben Hutt from Evergen. Ben, thanks for joining Energy Insiders. Thank you, Giles. Lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, look, I guess the occasion um, is um, Evergen announced quite a major announcement. Um with a $15 million capital injection led by Spanish um, renewable energy company FRV. Um, Give us a a brief overview of what's what's that about and what what it's going to enable you to do. Yeah, well, it's very exciting for us to be able to talk about this. Um, I think for the last 12 months or so, Avigen, we've been looking for strategic partners to help us scale moving into utility scale asset optimization and control, which we've sort of been doing quietly for about six months in Australia, um, but also access to international markets. And FRV um, have become a very kind of close strategic partner and now obviously a major shareholder. And with them, we, we're very values and purpose aligned. Like They have a very long-term focus to everything they do. And also their, their parent company, ALJ, has a very, very long-term focus around everything they do. And energy is obviously a very long long transition and so we're excited to be partnering with FRV and their innovation and venturing team trying lots of exciting new things different business models around energy in different countries around the world um, and so yeah it's it's exciting and I think um, validates really that lots of the things we do and we learn in Australia through some of the complexities we face in in, in the market and the regulations and all the other things um, really set us in good stead for going overseas and, and, and actually like exporting Australian tech to support the transition elsewhere in the world. Perhaps you can just explain a bit more detail about what it is that you you actually do, because I mean it's sort of sort of software that um, sort of maximises um, solar and battery storage in particular. I understand, but maybe that's not the whole story. Can you just say exactly what it is that you're doing, and then what you think you'll be able to do with this capital injection? Yeah, sure. So I took over running Evergen three and a half years ago now, um, and at the time, Evergen was doing battery optimization for residential homes on time of use tariffs and was selling and installing hardware um, back at that time. And the vision I brought was just very clearly that software could be extremely powerful in providing flexibility to the way assets work across the energy value chain. And the whole idea really is with the Internet of Things where everything's connected to the Internet, it's like if you can control when things happen to make them optimally efficient, so whether it's when people do things in their homes or in businesses or when energy is sold or stored on a solar farm or, or whatever it might be, then you can bring down the cost of energy and, and in, 
increase the returns available from investing in renewable technology. So whether that be solar and battery on a house or a solar farm trading optimally or a solar farm with a battery or a solar farm with a hydrogen electrolyzer. Like there's all of these clever things that we do with software around different types of optimization um, that make assets perform financially extremely well for their owners, make them last a long time. Um, and I think whilst we started in, in home batteries, what people wouldn't probably obviously understand, although Dave, David may get this, is homes are fiendishly more complicated to optimize than something like a solar farm with a battery because you've got many, many more inputs to consider around when the family do things and all the rest of it. So we've taken that kind of experience and nearly 10,000 assets around Australia into now utility scale assets. And obviously FRV own lots of utility scale assets around the world. And so there's an obvious alignment between what we're doing and what they're doing. Um, and so it's exciting times. And I might uh, say, firstly, in the interest of disclosure, that I, I'm an Evergen customer, in a sense, where I signed up to Evergen when I put my power wall in place. And uh, one between all the bits and pieces, my electricity bill still only $20 a month. Uh, with the electric car and with seven people in the house. Uh, so I'm quite happy about that just at the moment. But that's an aside. Um, ben, I wondered, Evergen, uh, there's a couple of things I wanted to talk about. Let's just talk about Evergen itself just for a second. Uh, could, are you able to say what the total implied valuation of Evergen is following this capital raise? And maybe a little bit about the other shareholders, which I think include the AMP? Yeah, so I, I won't go into valuation. I, I don't think that's appropriate. But we um, have been well supported over the years by like our founding shareholder was AMP Capital. And then um, three years ago, we were joined by Artesian, which is Australia's preeminent venture fund in their clean energy fund, which includes funding from CEFC. And then Providence Asset Group, who's now Providence Climate Capital, um, own and operate a bunch of small solar farms in Australia. Um, and also uh, investors in Lavo, which is the hydrogen battery technology that Evergen software powers. And so we sort of had a history over the last three years of adding investors that bring value and allow us to develop product around a particular customer problem or a market opportunity. And then that allows us to scale that and, and, and take that to market. So just dealing with the home side of things, which includes not just running a person's home, uh, or customers, but I guess also virtual power plants, which, you know, are starting to really scale up when I look at, uh, uh, I think one you're involved in, I think had 100 megawatts and Origins one is a couple of hundred megawatts now and AGLs also. So you're getting quite big, but I guess there's a tremendous battle on for control of the household meter in some ways um, and a lot of issues. I mean, in that space, I can think of switched in and solar analytics as, as well as you guys. Uh, you know, Tesla would want to run its own thing. Is, is this a fairly competitive space and is it something that you think you have a competitive advantage in or, or do you think, you know, how, how, or should you be going through the networks and, uh, you know, getting, maybe you could just talk yeah, about that a little bit. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So, um, Evergen has an innate competitive advantage with people like Switched In or Solar Analytics who rely on a hardware device in the house. We don't. So we can connect someone who's got solar or solar on a battery. They can just effectively sign up by giving us the serial number of their machine. And we then go through permissions with the hardware manufacturer. And then we just manage all of that. And as you would know, we just send you an app, send you a text message, and then you connect it and you can see what's happening. Um, batteries are, are fascinating because you can only have one master. And Evergen, I think I can probably safely say we, we control 
more Teslas in Australia than anyone apart from Tesla, and we, we coexist. So Tesla, like Evergen, because we provide an alternative for their customers. Um, and w w one of the things Evergen does is whilst we do power lots of virtual power plants for networks and, and retailers in particular, we also don't believe VPPs are right for everyone. So the, the issue with VPPs is, is like what's the benefit stack and as the asset owner or the consumer, how much of the value that gets created can you keep? Because obviously if you're sharing value with, with your retailer or the network or both, then, then obviously there's kind of an opportunity cost to sharing those things. So in the integrated system plan, you may have noticed that the sort of forecasts for home batteries are that about 80% of them won't end up in VPPs. Now that may or may not be correct, um, but one of the things Evergen does is like we're, we're retailer agnostic. So you can choose where you buy your energy from. Um, we will happily make some recommendations about where to buy your energy from and, and what tariffs are beneficial because obviously we, we know a lot about optimizing different things against different tariffs, so whether it be a time of use tariff or a spot exposed tariff is, is particularly good for people with big batteries and lots of solar because obviously you can benefit from the volatility. I'm sure we're going to talk about that given the dislocation in the market at, at the moment. Um, but Evergen's job is like we will always be free for consumers and we'll always enable consumers to choose their own retail plan and make their own decisions. And we may provide data and some analytics to influence those choices. But our job is to maximize the return on investment for, for you, David, and other people that own solar and a battery in particular. Oh, look, I'll only ask we... one more question and then I'm going to hand back to Giles because um, we've got a lot to cover today. Uh, and this question is, I'm always trying to think, you know, from the system's point of view, I guess I'll ask it this way. What's the role of, uh, I guess, the retailer versus the network in who should be running the uh, household electricity system versus the household having its own control? I mean, we, we, we've seen a lot of discussion about this, you know, it's the total integration and I'm just, you know, as someone that's in the battlefront, if you were designing the system from the top down, how what would you how would you think about it? So, fundamentally, I believe that as the energy transition accelerates, we should be engineering towards a more decentralised energy system comprised of smaller networks, either being coordinated or or being independently resilient. So, I'm I'm a big fan of homeowners being able to invest in their technology and own their own energy future and be effectively energy independent. Um, I, I like that you have a $20 bill, David, and you've electrified pretty much everything because our goal is to provide free energy for people that have invested in this technology forever. Like that's, that's the whole goal here. So I think you should be entitled to be connected to the grid, but you should be able to control your own destiny. So I'm not a fan of things like the solar tax or other network influenced kind of control to and I get very angry when people talk about there being excess solar energy it's not that there's excess solar energy it's just that the system can't cope with voltage so I think we should be solving for greater penetration of renewables and in order to accelerate the investment in that from a consumer point of view you need to let the consumer keep if not all the benefits then they need to keep 90% of the benefits so that they're sticky and they contribute to the system. I think the, the fundamental issue is that I think the network businesses model and business model and the regulatory framework around the networks and their five-year investment plans doesn't necessarily lend itself to innovation. 
And in Australia, we have three regulators who don't necessarily quite agree on the way forward. Um, state governments who don't agree on the way forward and are often allowed to make their own decisions where perhaps a national decision might be more beneficial. Um, so I think it's complicated and like energy is complicated, as you know. But in Australia, we've done a, a really good job of complicating it even more, partly by the geography that we live in, but partly because of all the competing interests of these entities. It's such a familiar story, isn't it, sort of, uh, of the Australian electricity industry. It's uh, a lot of excitement about new technologies and great frustration with the policies and the rules and everything else that goes with it. I mean, some of the things that you just expressed there about, you know, the sort of the future of decentralised energy and sort of the empowerment of consumers and things like that, um, a lot of people would agree with you, and I think a lot of people have been saying that for years. But do you see any indication that the regulators and the rule makers and the policy makers are getting their mind around this and moving forward? It just seems incredibly slow to us. I agree it's slow. Um, I've only been in energy for three and a half years. And I, if I look back to what I thought we would have accomplished as a nation three years ago, it would have been a lot more than we've done. And I think there's a, a degree of kind of protectionism around these very long duration assets like coal-fired power stations um, and I think what we've seen in the market recently is kind of a great big game being played around preserving legacy interests and kind of gaming a market to make it difficult for small players as we've seen and we'll talk about Anova and, and others that are that are in trouble at the moment because of this and I think we've had a perfect storm of like global fuel shortages leading to price increases that kind of put the power back in the hands of the, of the really big players. Um, and I think that's something we should, we should be concerned about. Yeah. Look, I think on that topic, uh, we might just uh, take the opportunity to have a break and um, then come back with the interview I did earlier today with Alison Crook, uh, the former chair or the founding chairperson of Innova, and we'll come back and join with David and Ben to discuss some of those other issues. JetCharge is the largest EV charging infrastructure company in Australia. Operating nationwide, JetCharge has spent the last decade providing hassle-free EV charging services to thousands of businesses and EV drivers. JetCharge also specialises in helping maximise your use of renewable energy and are the leaders in vehicle-to-grid integrated solutions. From home charger installations to the largest EV charging projects in Australia, JetCharge is paving the way for an electric future together. Alison Crook, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Giles. Well, it's not, it's not, not an unmitigated pleasure to be here. No, look, it must have been a very sad occasion. Um, you are the founder and former chairperson of Innova Energy. Um, it must have been um, heart-wrenching to see it uh, forced to call in uh, voluntary administrators this week. Yes, it's been devastating for everybody concerned. I think the uh, the staff, obviously shareholders, and the board has been trying so hard. Uh, not that I'm across that because I'm not on the board, obviously. But, uh, yeah, just devastating. And also, I think, for the region and for the future of community-owned energy at this point. Why has it been so hard for small retailers like Innova to get a foothold and maintain that foothold? I mean, we've seen that the energy market is in crisis at the moment. Wholesale electricity 
um, you know, prices soaring, but we seem to see market interventions that protect some of the incumbents, but there seems to be nothing there for the smaller smaller players. That's absolutely right, Giles. Uh, I mean, the whole issue has been caused, uh, you know, war and cold snap aside, and the failure of um, coal generators to maintain their plants um, by the fact that the market is is flawed. This whole structure is flawed. Audrey Ziebelman, the, the former um, CEO of the market operator, had said to me at one point some years back, they should never have allowed generators to own retail. That's the basic flaw in the market structure. That means that they, the big players, that oligopoly of big players who own both generation and retail, benefit from a volatile market because they uh, can get more for their uh, generation when the market is volatile. Mm. And uh, if, if they have to subsidise the uh, consumer through their retail arm, they can afford to do that because they're making super profits. So they're sort of winning on both sides of, of the um, on both sides of the equation. Yes. They can, pass, yeah. they can pass any losses through um, and, and take super profits on one end or the other. So, yes, they, they, they benefit from both ends. They, they own both ends of the market chain and it doesn't work. It makes it very, very difficult for small players um, to be able to compete. Uh, and when the prices are being set by uh, the big gas-owning gen generators, then... Uh, there's nowhere for the and the government sets a DMO, a default market offer, at a rate that is so much lower than the market, then there is no way small retailers can afford to pay that difference. That default market off, offer um, has been a problem for small retailers. I mean, it's a bit like, um, it's, it's sort of one of those sort of innocent sounding sort of initiatives. It's a bit like sort of technology neutral um, energy, but it's sort of, um, it's, it's sort of quite insidious at the back end of it, because basically the introduction of the default market offer had the purpose of actually reducing competition because it narrowed the price range that was available. Um, the big, the big uh, retailers didn't like that because they had to sort of be nimble and compete with smaller retailers like Nova. But once that default market offer regime came in, it kind of capped the top end and by doing so, capped the bottom end of the market as well. Yes, and it, it means that even with the best will in the world, um, the press were carrying on about the stiff increase in the rate of the default market office offer uh, that would be coming in at 1st of July. Um, and that everybody had to be prepared to pay, goodness me, 19% more in Queensland and 8 or 12% more in New South Wales and 5% more in Victoria or whatever. And yet the retailers uh, have to publish, have to publish a price that people can look at. So most of the, the retailers have simply refused to publish a price at the moment. And uh, you've got 25 of them who have said we're not putting a market price out. But if they're going to subsidise the difference between the real market price and the DMO, then there's no way they can do it. What should um, the regulators and the government be doing now? The regulators, uh, I think, need to be looking at um, the default market offer uh, itself and deciding whether that's the right way to go. The market operator needs to be looking at the way they manage prudentials because that demand for um, cash, you know, immediate cash um, to match the market price that they expect to be coming through 
in advance of any money coming in to small retailers is obviously a recipe for um, a cash flow crisis for everybody um, and can only be afforded by those with the very deepest pockets unless you have major hedges in place and most of most people's hedges have either run out or can't be obtained except at huge prices at the moment mm. so uh, very few people are willing to enter into uh, new arrangements right now because nobody knows what the market is doing. So that's what the retailers or regulators should be doing. Um, but in terms of the governments, I think they really need to be looking at potentially having declared, they should have declared a temporary energy supply crisis period to cover the winter period uh, if they're not willing to prevent uh, gas companies from exporting from, and we've all said for a long time there should be a, the same sort of regulation as there is in Western Australia to ensure that um, suppliers have to supply in-country needs first before they're allowed to export. They should also have said and by the way you can't allow those export prices to be setting your in-country prices. It should be something like a reasonable profit mm. margin over and above what it's costing you to produce um, but having not done any of those things and not broken up the um, gen generators from the retailers, so they're the three steps that were not taken in, a, in past years that could have been taken, um, then I think they need to be standing behind um, all the small retailers who don't own generation and have been unable to obtain hedges uh, for the difference between the wholesale market price and the default market offer. Mm. Or, um, let's face it, the federal government owns Snowy Hydro. They could have been instructing them to enter into contracts or uh, enter into hedges with the small retailers. So there were ways of means of avoiding the situation. What's the future now for um, for small retailers? I mean, I guess we, we, we can't really predict the future of the wholesale markets. We know that over the long term, with any luck, we're going to have more renewables and more storage into the market, and that should sort of reduce the exposure to volatile commodity markets. But in the near to medium term, that's going to take time. So I'm not too sure what happens there. Yeah, that's clearly going to take time. And that's why they needed to keep... Um, small retailers in play because they're the only ones that are providing the competition. Mm. Without competition, the market and the governments are at the mercy of the uh, large players who own both ends of the supply chain. Uh, so I can't see a future for the small retailer. Yeah. Oh, it's just so sad. I mean, you've identified the problems. I mean, not just now. I mean, you've identified the problems in years past and about some of the sort of the regulatory changes and the design changes of the market that needed to be done. Why has it been so hard to get that message sort of heard, understood and implemented? What forces are up against you? Look, I, it seems to be that everybody has a vision that's large scale and they simply don't understand that small can be beautiful that decentralisation, the ability to decentralise and have distributed energy means that you can have virtually self-sufficient regions which can be using that grid that we've all paid for but only up to the point where they need to. So you can have much more resilient regions with little bits of the country down in Gippsland and uh, the northern rivers being self-sufficient, having their own, um, their own, owning their own uh, community scale solar farms, owning, sharing batteries, uh, sharing batteries at the end of streets. If they had been willing to allow changes to the regulations to allow people to share energy 
if they'd been willing to allow the system to um, take energy from the house to a battery and then back again without charging you for taking it both ways, um, then we could have had self-sufficient, resilient regions. And nobody wants to see that. They want, they're, they're being all the time, I think, that in the past they've been lobbied by the big players all the time. And it's been all about we're going to build big plants. We need the government to make sure we've got big transmission. The taxpayer can pay for that. And, uh, and then we can control the price flow. So it's always been energy in, used to be always energy in, energy out. Now it's, and money following that. And they're really, even though we're getting to the stage where it doesn't have to be all the energy coming from outside, they're still trying to control the money flows. Mm. So I, it's honestly, it's been a case of, I think, the big players dominating the thinking um, of both the regulators and governments. And we found it almost impossible to get that message through that there are different ways of doing things. People keep saying, yes, yes, Alison, we know that um, we're going to have more distributed energy, but then we'll have to charge you to export. <laughs> what hope can, yes, I know, no, I know, it's, yes, yeah. Um, look, just a couple of final questions. Um, what hope can, is there that we can actually change this? Um, I don't know, a new government perhaps? Um, or do you just don't think, do you think that the sort of the, the, the power is just entrenched um, amongst the regulators and the industry and this revolving door of people that are going through and around? Giles, I really can't see a future for community owned and small at the moment. I do suspect that as things gradually change, and it's a combination of um, more people, when the price of storage comes down so that people can buy their own storage, they're, they're going to rebel against being held to ransom. Mm. Now, unfortunately, that's always going to be the wealthy end, and that's what we were trying to protect against, what Innova was trying to protect against. Uh, so the wealthy will do it first. They'll, they'll move increasingly to using less and less um, as they get uh, electric vehicles um, and have their batteries on the roof, ba their batteries beside the house and their storage on the roof. Unfortunately, it's driving an individualised approach as well, not a community-owned approach. But nevertheless, there will be the facility in place. There'll be the demand to allow sharing and there'll gradually, I think, be a pushback from consumers who say it's not necessary. Mm. But that, that's going to take a long time. And in the meantime, I think most of the large scale is going to be owned by the big companies and the transmission is going to be paid for by the taxpayers. Mm. One last question then. So I can't see, I can't see it. you know, it's not a, not a pretty no. picture in the future. And let's look at the, at, uh, the UK where they allowed 30 small retailers to go out of business. And my understanding from, and this is, is not, um, this is only uh, from people who actually live there, um, so they've said that their energy prices have gone up 400%. Hmm. Extraordinary. You may not be able to ask this final question. Um, what happens to Innova now? It's in a um, voluntary administration. I think they've imposed the retailer of last resort um, sort of protocol. Now those customers will be moved to other big retailers, ironically. Um, is there any hope um, that it can be somehow resuscitated? I would love to think there could be. It's in the hands of the administrator at this point, and I can't comment any further, really. Um, I don't have inside knowledge. It would take somebody to 
step in and say we don't I mean the, the staff have already been terminated which is really really sad um, but it would take someone to step in and say we'd like to kick it off again with backing and allow you to re-employ um, I don't know whether whether the license would have to be applied for again I really don't um, mm. so I, I just do not know I think that obviously the database is still there with um, all of the all of the um, customers but you know that's that's the asset at the moment what a sad end um, and um, on the sad note um, look thank you very much Alison for joining the uh, podcast today thanks Giles and that was Alison Crook from the uh, Innova Energy the founder and uh, former chairperson of Innova Energy um, ben, as you said, it was a sad story to see Innova uh, go down, as it were. I mean, they were sort of champions, um, like many small retailers, of decentralised energy. I mean, what hope do you think there is for the future? Um, or, 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 or just in response to, to to what's happened at Innova as a, a as a technology solutions provider, it must be very frustrating to see such players disappear. Yes, it, it is frustrating. Innova, good good people, um, good purpose. And um, I think, I mean, they, they seemed to first struggle back when Calide blew up six months or more ago when a hot, there was another market dislocation that affected lots of small players um, who were overexposed from a wholesale perspective. I think a year ago I would have said that there will be lots more new retailers. Like we get contacted by people wanting to become energy retailers in Australia because it's perceived as a as a as a good business to be in. But I think with all the changes we've had recently, um, it's going to be very difficult to be a subscale energy retailer at all. And I think if you don't own your own generation assets and you don't control your own destiny, then then it's going to be very difficult to to enter that space. And I think in terms of the impact on the transition, I think that gives more power to the to the big players, which ultimately probably won't help those of us innovating go faster. Um, mm. But having said that, you made some great points earlier about Origin and AGL, and and we know others are growing fleets of behind the meter assets and, and VPPs and storages everywhere now, which is which is great. So it is happening, um, but it's definitely a challenging time to be a small retailer at, at the moment. Mm. Giles, but, no, I, they, I, I, yes, yeah. What's, what's your take, David? Well, I think uh, people who go into the retailing space, just like people who start small solar farms, often don't really understand what they're getting into all that well. Uh, I have always thought that retailing, electricity retailing in Australia was really a tough business that requires a lot of scale. I can think of only at the moment one small startup retailer run by uh, a very determined New Zealand team, and that's Lumo, that ever really made it, you know, into the grade where it was uh, a desirable takeover and Snowy eventually picked it up, uh, as well as all the issues around hedging, which always get exposed in downturns. Um, you also have the, all the IT that is required in terms of customer care uh, with the added layers now in terms of... Um, um, uh, uh, you know, having to manage behind the meter and stuff, the stuff that ben, uh, Evergen does very well. And on top of that, uh, you get to a point where you're losing customers to churn as fast as you're gaining them, uh, unless you've got some product. And then it's for all these retailers that would like to sell green electricity, which of course isn't the big ones, 
then then it's very hard to actually get 100% green because uh, because most of them can't afford to have like a battery to do the last little bit. So you end up buying all these international certificates and stuff like that, uh, you know, which are fairly, but one, expensive and two, dodgy. So uh, electricity retailing is not a business for the faint-hearted. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a business that's big and requires lots of scale. Have we got the structure wrong, though? I think that's one of Alison Crooks's points is that basically, you know, we've got this market dominated by gen tailors. They control both sides of the market, generation and retailing. It's almost impossible to compete with them. Well, that's the natural state of affairs. I mean, uh, I, I rarely find myself agreeing with Danny Price, but... Uh, yeah, uh, when AGL had a court case about the acquisition of Macquarie Generation all those years ago, the uh, the judge in the case uh, listened to Danny's argument, which I think is correct that retail and generation just tend to go hand in hand. Uh, you know, my opinion, as I've expressed about retail, is its basic function in life is to buy long uh, and buy big and to sell short and to, to sell uh, a small. So it's got lots of customers that manage the load, and, and the retailer's job is to essentially buy or own a generation unit. And, mm. Giles, you know, further developing this management scene but not wasting too much time on it, uh, I, I think that if the retailers don't do all the wind and solar, then some generator will emerge that's good at it, that has this, like, tilt or someone that has a big value chain or neon that's always buying new wind turbines and solar farms and driving the cross down and finding ways to do it, and they'll end up killing the retailer. That's the sort of porter model. But anyway, we could talk about Now's not the short time to talk about that. No, but let's talk about capacity markets because that's the big thing. That's the big um, topic of the week. Um, the energy ministers met a couple of weeks ago in the start of this crisis or halfway through this crisis, I suppose, just said, oh, okay, let's get the ESB's latest offering on capacity markets. Um, it came through. It looks little, little change from um, what we saw last December. It's a sort of um, full capacity market. It's open to everyone, including coal. States can pick and choose and decide. Um, a lot of frustration out there saying this is the wrong approach. If your issue is about um, you know, managing the exit of coal, then think of something that can do that, either like bonds or, or what Frank Jotso is proposing, reverse um, um, auctions and then develop an availability or flexibility market, which then can look at the storage and dispatchable issues, but in a way that looks forward to new technologies. Um, David, what's your take? And then I get Ben's. Yeah, I, before just that's a great introduction, but I do want to make one more point about retail, and that is that the electricity volume in Australia has been static for 10 years. So whether you're an existing generator facing new entrants or a retailer, it's very, very tough to grow the value of your business when the total volume is static. The exciting thing if you're a retailer is that, uh, you know, volumes are set to grow 40% under the ISP over the next uh, uh, 18 years, a compound growth rate of 2.5% in the total system. And, you know, if you're a fan of Saul Griffith's work, Electrifying Households, you could see average household consumption trebling for, for every house that moves from having, a, you know, a, a petrol and diesel car to one that's using electricity to charge it, that the, the household volume can treble. Regarding capacity markets, uh, I personally think they're, they're an insurance policy, and I can agree with that, having some insurance in some sense, but I just don't even think like locational marginal pricing, it's the main issue. The ESB seems 
stuck on all of these old minor things when what's really needed is obviously everyone knows that the, we have to close the coal stations and put in more wind and solar and firm them up. That's the obvious thing that we have to do. But we can't even get a plan for closing the coal stations, let alone some policies that beyond what New South Wales and Victoria are doing, uh, uh, will actually get the bulk wind and solar into the system. What we've seen in the last few weeks was not a, uh, a power crisis. It was nothing a capacity market would have solved. It was coal generators not working and not enough energy every half hour of the day to actually supply everyone's needs, except with a lot of coaxing and ridiculously high prices. And a lot more wind and solar would have helped fix that. Ben, what's your take on the capacity market proposal from the ESB? Oh, I think it, it's a blunt instrument that won't solve the problem and it will delay the retirement of fossil fuel assets which i think we'll look back in 10 years and we'll regret i am a believer that we're we're destined to pass the 1.5 degree climate target and two degrees is possible but only if we rapidly electrify everything so i'm a big fan of Saul's work um and i think we need to accelerate the connection of large-scale wind, large-scale solar. We need to accelerate the adoption of storage behind the meter at all scales. Um, and I think what we need is a clear policy framework that allows the massive buckets of capital around the world to see a, a five- to ten-year roadmap of regulation and incentives to really allow us to massively deploy infrastructure quickly and then get it connected to the grid. And that's kind of the secondary problem here is that it's taking too long to get things to connect to the grid. Um, so I, I really think we should be better off investing in that. And I think the capacity mechanism is not the right answer. And Charles, look at, look at IEMO's role in all of this, right? They, they had to put a temporary hold on new connections because they're dealing with the crisis management. And, you know, as Ben says, the whole connection process, I mean, AIMA needs to focus on the essentials, in my opinion, which is their job is to get new generation connected, <laughs> not to keep the old generation running. Well, their job in the last week, I think, has been trying to keep the lights on, actually. I think that's probably one of the reasons why they put it on hold. But I mean, that was immensely frustrating for many of the people trying to go through that commissioning process. But David, I mean, you know, the point that Ben makes, I mean, you know, there's capital out there. They want to invest, but um, they, they want to see clear policies. And I, I just can't for the life of me see how we actually arrive there when we've got these sort of, you know, sort of, we've still got bollards in the way. I mean, the capacity market seems to be one of them. This incredibly slow process of sort of refining the rules and stuff like that. I know it's difficult to fast track them but we just seem to be as you suggested in your previous comments that we seem to be sort of stuck we, we seem to be stuck on some things and just which stops us moving forward on the others well i think uh, matt Keane, you know is offers a vision and a way forward and a clear policy uh as as does uh, lily d'ambrosio in victoria in, in in a different way and and as as matt's fond of pointing out there's uh, billions of capital waiting to come into the system and the federal government sits there with some transmission money uh, that it will lend through the CFC, but that will take time. I mean, to be fair to the ESB, it is, it's been made clear by Chris Bowen as recently as today that, you know, all the state ministers favour having some sort of capacity market. But mm. it, to me, it is only the second uh, 
secondary problem. And we, we've said so many times, I get bored with it, but, you know, we want to, in, uh, if you must have a market, it has to incentivize new dispatchable capacities that can use all the wind and the solar uh, and not, not a coal keeper thing. But, I mean, that's a boring argument in the sense that we, we all know what we think and we've been saying it for years and years and years, and yet, you know, you do get people just uh, keeping on wanting to insist that uh, on the reverse. Yeah, well, that's exactly the problem. Um, ben, it seems like we're actually going back to the sort of the balkanisation. Um, we're continuing on with the balkanisation. Basically, um, if we have this capacity markets with different states sort of picking and choosing and people like New South Wales having their own program and Victoria having their own program, um, I'm not too sure whether that's going to make it easy for people to sort of think of Australia as a national market. It's not going to be. It's going to be all these individual states. Oh, I agree. And, like, I think it's crazy. I think if the terrible war in Ukraine's brought anything into focus, it's that energy independence is an energy security, is a national and an international issue. And I, I think it's a shame that the states should be making their own decisions. I think we should have a very simple national framework. And obviously Western Australia is separate because it's its own market, but we need to have a simple framework that's the same everywhere and creates a clear path forwards towards decarbonisation of the energy system, and we need it, like, now. And, and you know, Giles and, and Ben, it's like you know, we are oil-dependent, right? If, uh, uh, and, and why should we be? We absolutely don't need to be. Something as simple as an EV standard, uh, uh, fuel tailpipe emission standard, instead of just always having to buy Teslas, which great cars, but we'd like to have a few more choices, we could get a lot more EVs into the system just with a slow stroke of the administrative pen. Why is that hard? Carbon tax and wheels. David, imagine the headline. Yeah, I can imagine that. I can also imagine energy independence. Uh, uh, average motorists will uh, save money. Uh, uh, and electricity uh, uh, demand will increase and will all be done by wind and solar and we'll all live happily ever after. Um, ben, I, was, I presume that Evergen, um, with this technology, would be very keen to see more EVs joining the grid. I, I, I'm presuming that your, your, your staff um, would, um, would, would be happy to work with those and connecting them to the grid and the home, et cetera. Absolutely. And like EV charging optimization for networks and, and the homeowners and all those things is very much something um, on our on a path forward, it's just very sad that Australia's adoption of EVs is so slow. And again, if you look at places like Norway or even the UK, where, I, where I'm from, very clear policy direction, setting things that will happen five and ten years out, gives everyone the opportunity to make choices and make the right choices. And again, coming back to Saul Griffith's book, is like if, if everyone's next car is electric, um, then that's really what needs to happen. And And but again, you need policy to influence that. And, and the government should be, if not financing these things to make it easier and more accessible for people of all walks of life, then they should definitely be providing a supportive policy framework that allows everyone to benefit from clean, cheap electricity. And, and Giles, we have to make that uh, point that you make. It's not just uh, policies that su uh, support subsidise EVs. Uh, and don't they do benefit the, uh, generally the people that can afford the EV in the first place? But what they do is to um, seed the second-hand market for cars. And once the second-hand market gets going, people will be able to buy EVs at you know sixty percent, seventy percent of their new price, and will still get all the fuel savings. And so their value 
uh, equation will look fantastic compared actually to the new car buyer. And that's how it will benefit the subsidising the first car buyer will actually uh, benefit the whole of Australia. Mm. Well, look, we might wind it up there. Um, wind it up there. Um, David, just uh, f- looking forward to next week, I think we get the updated integrated system plan. It's going to be interesting to see to what extent that's changed, given all the supply crunches and the price rises and the sort of delays in projects such as Snowy 2.0 and stuff like that. Do you expect them to sort of revise significantly their forecast for 2030, or do you think they'll be ploughing on regardless? Uh, I, I can't really say, but I do expect them to incorporate, for instance, Victoria's offshore wind uh, into the system. And for me personally, in, at a nerdy level, I'm very interested to see uh, what difference that makes, uh, even to projects like Marinus Link, if any. Uh, and I'll be interested to see how they respond to Snowy's comments uh, about, you know, making uh, VNI West and HumeLink optional. Uh, and so, look, so there's lots of nerdy stuff, uh, Giles, and let's wait and see till it's there. Okay. Ben, uh, very quickly, anything that you want to see in the um, ISP that you didn't see in the draft? Uh, I, I think AMO is do, doing a pretty good job at the moment of like updating things and, and trying to take, like Daniel Westman and the team are taking a very, I think, proactive stance towards transition generally. Um, but I think what I'm most looking forward to in the next week really is getting over the market dislocation. So hopefully turning the wholesale market back on Thursday, Friday, kind of we get back to normal and everyone plays by the rules and allows us to have a fair and free market for, for electricity again. That's, I think, what, what I'm most watching. And I, Giles, we should say, I, I personally want to hand out a compliment to uh, AEMO for actually suspending the market and uh, fixing the price. I, in the, as a short-term circuit breaker, I think it's been very effective and uh, stock prices, you know, consumers will pay less as a result. Well, I that's agree. Good. And, well, that's good. And um, we'll see over the next week with great interest um, how successful they are in actually re-establishing the market. Um, but anyway, look, um, thank you very much, um, David. Um, thanks. Thank you, Ben, for joining us. Um, um, great to have you on the podcast. And thank you very much from both of us for your um, continued sponsorship of the podcast um, through Evergen. Um, greatly appreciated. Um, My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm a I'm a big fan of your work. Oh, fantastic. Thanks also to our uh, other regular sponsor, Pylon, and also our, um, our mid podcast um, temporary sponsor, uh, Jet Charge. And thanks to everyone listening out there. And we'll be back again next week with another episode of Energy Insiders. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.